The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We begin today with a prisoner in a cell. Quote, The cell's occupant was one of the most notorious criminals in 18th century France. He had spent the bulk of his 45 years reveling in depravity engaging in blasphemous acts with a prostitute, torturing a beggar, poisoning whores, hiding in Italy in the romantic company of his sister-in-law, locking away girls and boys in his chateau for his own sexual designs, and narrowly surviving a bullet fired at his chest. For years he had evaded the law, breaking out of an alpine prison, dodging a military raid on his home, absconding from the clutches of a police squadron, and eluding his own public execution. His name was Donatien Alphonse Francois de Sade, but most people knew him as the Marquis de Sade. End quote. The cell was in the Bastille, a special cell in what was called Liberty Tower, with shelves of 600 books, including everything from Homer and Shakespeare to the history of vampires. The cell was also stocked with expensive perfumes, fine linens, colorful tapestries, and, quote, a prized collection of dildos, end quote. The prisoner is about to write, in his words, a unique feat of debauchery. It would become known as the 120 Days of Sodom, and the writing of it, the manuscript itself, and the contents would all become as notorious as their author. This is the book, to borrow from George Carlin, that will curve your spine. We'll have an expert on that book here today to tell us the story. His name is Joel Warner, and the passage I read at the outset is from Joel Warner's book, The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript, and the biggest scandal in literary history. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. No appetizer this time. We're still a little glutted from our full episode on the Marquis de Sade, which you're welcome to visit and enjoy, if that's the right word, if you'd like to listen to that episode first. Or you can just dive right in with today's meal, which is our conversation with Joel Warner. This is such a spectacular story. And then, because I think we could use a palate cleanser, Let's return from Saad's dungeon with something with a little more lift to it, a meringue, so to speak. My last book with Diane Rayor, our friend and translator of Sappho. We'll hear if she chooses Sappho as the last book she will ever read, or if she'll choose something else. Okay, let's get started. Joel Warner, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Joel Warner, writer and editor, whose work has appeared in Esquire, Wired, Newsweek, Men's Journal, Bloomberg, Businessweek, Popular Science, and Slate, among other places. He's here today to discuss his book, The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, A Notorious Scoundrel, Mythical Manuscript, and the Biggest Scandal in Literary History. Joel Warner, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thank you for having me. So, what is your background? Are you a journalist? What's your previous work focused on? I've long been a journalist. I've been a journalist now for over 20 years. Mm. And I haven't ever had a real dedicated beat. I've always just looked for really fun, just eye-opening stories. Mm -hmm. Stories that I can really kind of dive into and immerse myself in for quite a while. That kind of showcase worlds people most most people don't know about, and that can usually be be a bit of an adventure. So that's been a it's been a pretty fun way to go about my job. Yeah. So how did this story come your way? So this particular story for me had its origins quite a few years ago, back in 2015. I was hanging out with some friends, and they were telling me about a recent trip that they had taken to Paris, and mm. these were. Uh, literary types and kind of weird literary types. So they they were telling me how they had tried to visit this museum called the Museum of Letters and Manuscripts to see this newly acquired manuscript, which was a 40-foot-long, uh, four-inch-wide scroll, so it looked like a <laughs> roll of toilet paper, that had been written by the notorious Marquis de Sade yeah. while he was imprisoned in the Bastille prison. It was supposed to be the worst thing ever written. And they went to go visit to see this thing because it seemed pretty, pretty unusual and pretty incredible. And when they got to the museum, the facility was was all boarded up and the French police officers were carting materials out the door. And they told my friends that the owner of the museum had just been accused of being the Bernie Madoff of France. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I was like, okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. That's like offering up a course meal to a connoisseur. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we will get to all of that. But I'm curious, at that point, what did you know about the Marquis de Sade? I was trying to remember that. I definitely knew of the Marquis de Sade. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd read any of his materials. What I, I probably best knew him from the 1990s film Quills, mm-hmm. starring Jeffrey mm-hmm. Rush. And Cade Winslet, which I probably saw in my late teenage years or like early college years. I thought it was fine. It didn't make that much of an impact on me. Yeah. And I kind of left it at that. 
And now that you've spent this time in the world of the Marquis de Sade, what do you think makes him so fascinating? Um, what I don't think makes him fascinating was this idea that he was some brilliant writer, some mm. incredible philosopher, as some people seem to suggest. I don't, you know, I've read a bunch of his stuff. I know a lot about him now, and I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. I think what makes him interesting is just how explicitly transgressive he was. Yeah. And maybe part of that is we still have records and proof of how just explicitly transgressive he was. I think it shows us today. I think we we sometimes have this assumption that thanks to the Internet and whatnot, we've gone far beyond any kind of past generations in our ability to try to shock one another and what mm -hmm. we're exposed to. But the work of someone like the Marquis de Sade kind of illustrates that no, uh, humanity has been willing to kind of dive into kind of the really kind of dark and horrendous aspects of itself for quite some time. Yeah, right. It sort of reminded me as I was going through his life and his works preparing for this, it, it reminded me of that line in the Marlon Brando film, The Wild One, where they said, what are you rebelling against? And he said, what do you got? Uh, it yeah. was almost like, what social norms or moral values do you want to violate? Or what lines do you want to cross? The Marquis yeah. de Sade seems to have just said, all of them, if they're there, I want to cross them. Yes, that's a good way to put it. He just seems kind of like an unkillable organism of, of lust and depravity. I want to ask you later about what motivated him, but uh, if you could tell. But before that, I just wanted to ask what he was doing in the Bastille. That's actually a bit of a funny story. So his literary career actually began in the Bastille. That's when he became obsessed with writing. That's when he mm. became obsessed with kind of, he just wrote all sorts of stuff. Like a lot of it really transgressive, and not all of it, but, but you know, that's what he's become known for. Mm -hmm. But before then, he had a bad reputation in France because a lot of the stuff that he would go on to write about, he kind of tried to do himself. Torturing prostitutes, engaging in sacrilegic acts with prostitutes, uh, locking away young men and, and women in his chateau for his own kind of sexual tendencies, evading the law and kind of escaping to Italy in the romantic company of his sister-in-law, who was at the time, she was kind of an aristocratic version of a nun. So he had this pretty like horrible reputation in France for doing some pretty outrageous things. Now, the funny thing is, the thing that led him to be imprisoned in the Bastille was the fact that his mother-in-law just got sick of all his antics. Mm. His mother-in-law was actually an incredibly uh, powerful person in pre-revolutionary France. And so she went to her friend, the king, and said, look, can you just go lock this guy up for me? Because he's really becoming a pain in the butt. Yeah. Because he just seemed like nothing would nothing would stop him. That he had been arrested before, I think. And but it was like, yes, I did it, and I'll do it again. That seems like his basic attitude toward anything that was viewed as illegal. Yeah, yeah. And one question is: Was he just like even able to stop himself, or was it kind of like his writing where he just became so obsessed with doing these? Anything his heart desired to uh, satiate his own appetites. And also, I think he sought the attention. You know, here is this mm. incredibly spoiled young man, had grown up around kind of rich and plenty, hadn't had much support from his parents, loved theater and drama. So I think, consciously or not, I think in some ways he ended up kind of seeking the kind of negative attention he would receive for doing these, you know, really horrible things. I don't want to kind of downplay. Yeah. 
Right. Like literally, you know, this wasn't just kind of him doing kind of like kinky stuff. This was, by all definitions, at least sexual assault, if not worse. Yeah, right. I wanted to make that clear, too, that it's not a case where we say, oh, he's a First Amendment hero or this was a prudish society who couldn't handle somebody who wrote explicitly about natural things like sex and maybe some things we might consider today to be uh, transgressive, but not. You know, horrible. Yeah, but no, he was is, like, he was, yeah, he was beyond the pale. Yes, this was no kind of revolutionary for sexual rights. This was an, you know, incredibly selfish and uh, violent and abusive individual that uh, that can't, you know, none of his actions can be justified by what he did afterwards or his writing. No, right. we should we should take this guy for what he really was, which was not a very good guy at all. Okay, so he's in the Bastille, and what were his prospects for getting out? It it was really unknown in that thanks to his angry mother-in-law, the king had locked him up in something called a letter de cachet, which meant he was locked up by the king with no actual charges, uh, no opportunity to have appeal. So for for all Saad knew, he could spend the rest of his life like Mm. in prison. I mean, it really wasn't known how long he would spend. And what was his life like in prison? He complained about it a lot. He acted like he was... uh, uh, destitute and forgotten prisoner in all of France, and I'm sure it wasn't wasn't a fun stay in the Bastille, which was one of the most notorious kind of prisons in in all of Europe at the time. It was it was in the central Paris. It was this kind of icon of the rule of, of the French crown. But having said that, you know, if you walked into his cell at the time, I think most people would be pretty surprised. It was filled with with books, uh, kind of treats and delicacies, mm. kind of kind of wall hangings, kind of desks furniture because he was still an aristocrat Mm. and so he still received all the uh, kind of accoutrements of the french aristocracy so he was provided all the stuff even uh sexual kind of devices so yes it surely wasn't fun to be locked up in the bastille but it was far from this completely kind of bleak lifestyle Mm. and he was a famous writer already right at the time he was imprisoned he hadn't really written much of anything so, you know, at that point, he was just known for all his kind of, of real world transgressions. You know, you know, here is this mm. kind of this horrible aristocrat who done all these things. And the rumors had spirals. But the rumors were even more extreme than the stuff he actually did, which was saying something. But he didn't actually start writing until he was in prison. because He's like, OK, I think I have to kind of satiate my kind of desires in some way. So I'm just going to start writing all this stuff. Mm. And this is when he wrote Justine and... He wrote the beginnings of several of his kind of more recognizable works, uh, like Justine, and then he expanded that after he was released, and you know, a whole bunch of novellas and hundreds of letters. And then some of these later on, you know, d- during his lifetime, w- would become published, and that's how he first became known as this kind of writer of transgressive, like erotica mm. or pornography is probably a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you suggested that he needed kind of an outlet for his energies and and poured some of his obsessive behavior into his writings. Did he have other ambitions for his writings? Was he hoping they would make him rich and famous or change the world in some way? As far as we know, he wasn't, don't think he was aiming to change the world. This was just, he had one focus and one focus for his entire life. And that is himself. Mm. So after he was eventually released from the Bastille, released from prison and kind of, the upheaval of the French Revolution. I'm not sure if he always had a goal to continue writing, but uh, he soon realized 
that thanks to the revolution, the rest of his life was not going to be as smooth sailing as it was under kind of the French aristocracy. It was like, mm. oh, wait, I have to kind of continue on my like, lavish lifestyle and continue to have uh, money. I need to be known for something. I need to produce something. And so after that point, he started kind of publishing his writing and wrote plays and tried to, you know, really kind of kind of tried to establish himself in the world of letters. And he was somewhat successful, probably not exactly for the stuff that he wanted to be known for. I think he wanted to be known as this incredible playwright. Instead, the works of kind of erotic fiction that he wrote ended up kind of sealing his reputation. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more about this mythical manuscript. Okay, we are back with Joel Warner. Joel, so we have this notorious scoundrel trapped in the Bastille. He had books and so on, but he still, my understanding is he was writing something different at night. What was he writing? Well, at some point, when he was just writing all of this stuff, he apparently got this idea in his mind that he wanted to write a full novel and probably the most extreme novel that had ever been created. Mm -hmm. So he acquired a whole bunch of kind of uh, sheets of paper, and at night, because uh, I think he was worried that you know, this thing would be discovered by kind of the, uh, the prison guards and be confiscated, he started writing this novel called The 120 Days of Sodom. And he wrote it in a pretty usual way, in that you know he would cover one sheet of paper, and he would paste another sheet below it, and keep writing so on and so forth so he ended up with this 40 foot long scroll and then he wrote on the other side too so it's almost like 157,000 words and the writing was so small it's almost hard to read without a magnifying glass yeah and the assumption why he did that mostly is because because therefore he could roll this thing up and squeeze it into a crack in his cell wall <laughs> so there you go and you say experts would come to call the results one of the most important novels ever written and the gospel of evil. Yes, there's this is novel because it is so extreme has triggered a huge variety of responses. Some people say it is this kind of incredible kind of work of fiction because it breaks from all concepts of fiction that came before it. It was more extreme. It kind of went over the human abyss, yeah. as one expert put it. And maybe something to that, but other people just say, no, this thing is literally the worst thing ever written. Like, like it is so horrible. It's not about sex at all. It's really about violence and dominance over over weaker individuals. Yeah. And it is horrible stuff. And you talk about the manuscript and the book as having a it's almost like a sinister or evil presence. The editors and translators who emerge from dealing with it sound like they've been in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant when it gets opened in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely you have that feeling. You just look at what some of these experts say. I was like being sucked into this limitless erotic quagmire <laughs> that that you plagued with crazed laughter for days. Oh. Um, I think some of that's probably a little <laughs> bit of a little extreme. That's probably the little self-promotional of these people. Yeah. But having read almost this whole thing, it is not an easy read. Yeah. Because it just becomes, uh, the more you read, this ever-increasing, starker and starker list of, like, the worst things you could imagine one person doing to somebody else. Mm. Eventually, the violence becomes cartoonish. 
and not in a good way, but cartoonish because you know the stuff they are doing to people is not physically accurate. It's not possible to do things so kind of so horrendous to people. It becomes more extreme than kind of the torture porn movies that we used to these days, like Saw or yeah. Hostel. It's worse than that stuff. Seems like with works like that, there's sometimes you you start out and you think, oh, how can this how can this character be doing this? How can this character be doing that? And then you start thinking, how could this writer have kept going like this? How could the creator of yes. this have continued to put this down on paper? And it's something like basically a little over a month uh, worth of work. He put this whole thing down. So, mm-hmm. so he just sit himself up every night and just write some of the most horrible stuff ever put down on paper. Mm. So that's how he passed his time. And then he had a lot of hopes for this, it sounds like. It sounds like he was hoping that it would be an important work or that it would shake the world. But then at one point, he was afraid that it had been lost. So what happened there? Yes. And there is some question about what his aim was for this thing, because it wasn't really clear whether this thing could ever really be published in Mm -hmm. his lifetime. I mean... Most likely it could have been published in one of the underground presses that would go on to publish some of his other pretty uh, horrendous works during his lifetime. But it really, you know, there was this question about what was his point even writing this? Was it just for himself or or did he want the wider world to eventually read this? I mean, now, whatever the reason, as you just pointed out, he eventually came to think that this thing had been destroyed. And that's because he was forcibly removed from the Bastille and a few days after that, before his long-suffering wife could kind of acquire his belongings from his cell, citizens of Paris sacked the prison, and it was a famous fall of the Bastille and the start of the French Revolutionary War. So Saad actually went to his grave believing that the scroll had been kind of destroyed Mm. in the destruction of the Bastille. And he said, every day I weep tears of blood over its loss so they're you know <laughs> dramatic to the end as you can say about sad <laughs> right but instead how did it how did it manage to survive and this is probably what intrigued me the most about this whole story is that this scroll ended up being one of these incredible objects of history mm-hmm. that through kind of random twists of fate ended up narrowly surviving one catastrophe after another ended up going on this incredible kind of journey all over Europe and into these kind of main kind of points in history. And so right at some point, kind of during the sacking of the Bastille, it appears that this manuscript was discovered by this citizen who all we know is his name is uh, Arnu, A-R-N-U-X. And, and this guy was apparently from Provence. And from what we know, he took it back to Provence and ended up selling it to uh, some a provincial uh, nobleman. And it ended up being kind of stuck in some, some provincial library for about a century, mm. where basically no one really kind of knew about it. But there were these like rumors getting out, especially in these kind of Victorian kind of circles of kind of underground erotica collectors, that somewhere this lost manuscript of Marquis de Sade had survived because by that point he had become known for some of his other works but they're mm-hmm. like no there's something out there that's even like his magnum opus yeah yeah there's something out there that's even worse than everything else and it's just like waiting to be exposed one day yeah <laughs> it is kind of incredible so what we've told it seems like could already be a book in and of itself but your book i think is just getting started and i don't want to spoil it for 
listeners who want to read the story for themselves. So I'll let you kind of take the lead in what to reveal. But at some point, it ends up in that museum that your uh, friends were trying to go to see. So do you want to sketch out kind of what happened to it in the meantime? I think a lot of the fun in the book is to kind of see where the scroll just ended up and the impact it had, which is not at all what most people would expect. But it moved from these kind of underground erotica collectors to a kind of pioneering kind of sex researchers. Uh, it was almost caught up in Nazi book burnings <laughs> in Berlin in the 1930s, became this kind of icon of the surrealist movement in Paris after that, and triggered a new work of art so outrageous that it that it caused riots and ended up being banned for 50 years. I mean, this is the work of art that was inspired by the scroll. It was eventually kind of stolen, smuggled across Europe, and there were these international court battles. Uh, one of the richest men in the world uh, had it for a bit. So on and so forth. This really incredible story. And everyone who took the scroll ended up kind of, kind of using it or interpreting it in different ways for their own kind of needs and interests. And then finally... It ended up back in France when it was purchased for about $10 million, making it one of the most valuable manuscripts in the world. And it was brought to this Museum of Letters and Manuscripts that was run by this really powerful manuscript company at the time. And it was this kind of, it was a celebrate homecoming. It was a 200th anniversary of Saad's death. Some French scholars were calling Saad Francis Shakespeare, which I think is pretty extreme. Um, and so it was a big deal. So, so everything was going great. And then a few months after they had uh, begun exhibiting the scroll in this museum, the police stormed in. Hmm. Now, before we get there, I just wanted to ask, was it published as a novel or was it the case that if you wanted to read this, you really had to have access to the scroll? Well, there were certain owners of the scroll over the years that ended up producing published versions all mm, pretty limited okay. amounts and you know under kind of guises of oh this this is kind of a, a scientific textbook of sexual diversity which is kind of crazy or you know this kind of work of philosophy so they would kind of publish these kind of limited editions of it but then thanks to that and thanks to kind of the erotic book trade and whatnot i mean it ended up you know versions of it maybe not completely accurate versions of it ended up kind of being produced and being distributed pretty far and wide. So by the time this thing arrived back in France in 2014, this was already a pretty widely kind of published book in various forms. Right. But the manuscript itself was still this kind of mythical thing that was that it kept changing hands. Right. Okay. So the police <laughs> the police get involved. And what were what was going on there? So yes. So right at like the height of this organization's success, it was, this company was called Aristophil. It was started by the self-made son of a plumber. And they, you know, and this company had come in and literally kind of taken control of the rare book market in Paris, which is probably the most elite book market in the world. So this is where all the big book factions are. It's where books are sold for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And all of a sudden, this kind of radical uh, businessman came in and can offer this whole new uh, strategy, and he kind of cornered the market. Yeah. And he got thousands and thousands of people all over Europe to invest in his company, to own, quote-unquote, shares of these manuscripts. He amassed a treasure trove of 135,000 documents, one of the largest private uh, collections of manuscripts in the world, things from kind of the writings of Albert Einstein to, to Napoleon's love letters to Josephine to fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then eventually kind of Saad's long lost manuscript. 
So yeah, so he's been doing well. But all of a sudden, 2014, the police storm in and say, hey, actually, this whole thing is this giant financial scam. And I don't want to give away too much about what that meant, but that was like, you know, they're saying, no, this thing is just a huge con. Mm. Okay. And then how did you research this? Were you traveling? Was there anything you could go see or people you could go interview or were you doing this all online? Yeah. I mean, one of the fun things about kind of doing this book, of course, is to do it right. You had to kind of go in person to many of these places. So I spent Mm. a lot of time in Paris meeting with and kind of trying to learn a bit of the trade from these antiquarian booksellers and the book Auction House, the alleged victims of this con, kind of the head of this operation himself, living in this kind of opulent villa in the south of France. So, you know, I went and did a lot of this work in person and met with these people to try to really kind of understand the world of rare books and manuscripts in France, because it was utterly fascinating and why it was such a big deal that this alleged scam had erupted. And I was moving uh, right along. I was also getting like just massive amounts of research books through interlibrary loans to my local libraries from all over the world, you know, books in French and German and whatnot. I was feeling great. And I had my last big research trip and I was going to travel all over Europe, France, Germany, Switzerland. I was going to go to London to meet one expert. And that was scheduled for April of 2020. Mm. And of course, the pandemic got in the way. All of a sudden, there was no travel, all the libraries shut down, and all of a sudden I had nothing. I was dead in the water. Mm. Did any part of you think that maybe this was part of the legendary curse of the Marquis de Sade? That's a funny question. <laughs> I mean, I uh, well, multiple experts really told me they really believed this manuscript was cursed. Yeah. I'm not, you know, knock on wood, I'm not an especially suspicious person. I think it's more about kind of the lust and greed and all of that kind of... Uh, Right. The people that would be attracted to it. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, what, that's what caused all the upheaval. I mean, I'd feel really bad if my work on this manuscript ended up causing the COVID-19 <laughs> global pandemic. I'd, I'd feel pretty guilty. Right. So what questions does this story raise for you? What does it expose about how we think of literature? The main reason that I said I want to go write a book on this is because it seemed completely fascinating and utterly fun. Yes, you know, there are some really kind of dark aspects of the story. There are real victims of what happened. But to me, it was just something like this really kind of fun, fascinating, juicy story that hadn't really been told. So that was the main thing I wanted to do. But I am uh, the son of a school teacher and librarian, so I do try to kind of pass some lessons along. And so for me, one of the most interesting aspects that I got to look at, especially in kind of the modern day part of the story about the this kind of the rise of this company that ended up being accused of being this big kind of uh, literary con job. It comes down to this concept of the value of hand of mm. written works as the age of handwriting comes to an end. That was one of the arguments of this company is like, look, like we will no longer have the handwritten letters or kind of drafts of history's greats moving forward because we all write word processor and we all communicate via text and email. Mm-hmm. So we're losing this kind of integral part of our written communication that we've had for millennia. And so the argument of this French businessman was like, oh, well, therefore, these letters are going to become like the Stradivarius violins and become worth all this money. I don't know about that, but this concept of what happens, how do we like value 
not necessarily financially, but also kind of culturally and socially, how do we value the kind of remnants of handwriting that do get left behind? And that to me is a really fascinating question. Yeah. And we've gone through this with art, for example. And even though everybody in the world can see what the Mona Lisa looks like, it's still not the same as being in the same room with it and being in its presence. And yes. with a manuscript, it seems like it would be even more so that way. But you can read the text published in a book, but it's going to be nowhere near what it's like to see it on a scroll that was written in a prison in tiny handwriting by a guy who was this sort of insatiable, demonic presence. Yes, and that's the thing. And there is, you know, that's what that's what a kind of manuscript and letter collectors is actually kind of a you know, a small but really kind of passionate kind of population of these collectors. And they say, yeah, nothing can compare to seeing, to acquiring the actual manuscripts, excuse a paper, even papyrus, of these historical greats, and that they wrote it in their own hands. There's something about that. And I know now there are efforts of archives to, for example, to kind of collect and preserve the computer hard drives of modern day, like literary greats. And there's, you know, and, the, and there's value to that. I mean, because, you know, you can see a lot of their work, their kind of work process. But I think there's still these questions up in the air about like, yes, but will it ever have the same feeling? Will it ever have the same mm. kind of social or psychological value as these, think about the Declaration of Independence, right. seeing that document, right? So that's one of these really fascinating wrinkles that I got to explore. The book is called The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, A Notorious Scoundrel, A Mythical Manuscript, and the Biggest Scandal in Literary History. Joel Warner, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And finally today, Diane Rayor, translator of the new complete collection of Sappho published by Cambridge University Press. After she told us about her life studying and translating Sappho, starting with her first read of that amazing ancient poet, I asked Diane what book she might like to read last. Okay, we're here with Diane Rayor, expert in classics and the works of Sappho in particular. Professor Rayor, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I like that question. <laughs> my answer would be, I would like to read for my last book a post apocalyptic utopian fiction oh, okay. like kind of like what Becky Chambers monk and robot series is she has one called the psalm for the wild built yeah i want a book that is so persuasive that society determines to avert the climate catastrophe that's coming oh okay that's what i want to read <laughs> yes, you 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 don't want to leave without knowing that there's going to to be some uh, 
turnaround, some reversal, some mind change that that takes us on a different course than the one we're currently on. Yes, that's what I want to read. (laughs) (laughs) I was grinning when you were describing it because after talking to you about Sappho, I was so convinced that this was going to be the the rare instance where a scholar actually chooses the book that they've spent their lifetime working on and enjoying and, and everything. But uh, instead of Sappho, we'll go with the post-apocalyptic uh, fiction that gives us some optimism. Yes, it has to be post-apocalyptic utopian. Utopian, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. In that utopia, everyone will be reading Sappho. <laughs> As long as the earth and the land still exist (laughs) and we haven't destroyed it all, that will be good with me. (laughs) Okay. Diane Rayor, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. And thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Okay, that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Diane Rayor for that cameo appearance and, of course, to Joel Warner for being here for the full interview. You can find his book, The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, at bookstores everywhere. Do check it out. It's a fun read. We'll be back with Emma Smith, who's going to tell us all about Shakespeare's first folio, which turns 400 this year, and we'll soon have the Empress Messalina, or rather her biographer, Honor Cargill Martin, here. Speaking of notorious sexual scandals... And now I'm talking about the Empress, not the biographer. Oh, this is all jumbled up. I should probably start over. But no, I'll plunge forward like the libertine I am, free to do whatever I want. No rules for Jack Wilson. I'm free to to flagellate my sentences and fill their wounds with hot wax. And before I am dragged off to the podcaster's best deal, let me just say I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.